Father, let us with one voice just sing your praises this morning. May we sing of your love. May we sing of that amazing grace and mercy you so freely give us. Lord, let us demonstrate that love by loving each other this morning with our prayers, Lord, with our smiles. Lord, and just show us how we can serve and uh, care for one another during this time and as we come into this upcoming week. Thank you for bringing us here together, and we just rejoice in who you are. Join with us as we celebrate your presence. We praise in Christ's name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles. Mark chapter 11. In September of 1990, a group of drug crime suspects in Michigan received an invitation to a wedding from a well-known drug dealer in the area. Attendees were asked to check their guns at the entrance. Apparently that's a common occurrence in gang weddings is to bring a gun. Everyone loves a good wedding, right? They were looking forward to a good time. They get the invitation. They said, this is going to be a party. We're going to enjoy this. What they did not know was, is that they were actually part of a five-month undercover investigation. The police had staged and advertised a wedding on Friday night, figuring it was easier to make drug suspects come to them than for them to go out and find them. The groom was an undercover investigator, the bride was a police officer, and the bride's father, who was the reputed crime boss that they all wanted to meet and dine with, was actually the police chief. That evening, after the vows, the toast, and the dancing, the band called S-P-O-C, or Cops Spelled Backwards, played I Fought the Law and the Law Won, setting off the cue for the evening's real agenda. All the police officers were then asked to stand, and those who remained seated were arrested. A dozen suspects were arrested, and by Sunday afternoon, 16 people were in custody. No one likes false advertisement. Have you been found recipient of false advertisement? It's not fun, is it? There's nothing worse than going to a store only to be disappointed or frustrated because what was advertised was either not available or not as expected. When this happens, we react angrily to the store or the service provider. Today, we may write a Yelp thing. We may put it on Facebook or Twitter or whatever or not. We make our anger known. In today's passage, we're going to see that Jesus is going to react to some false advertisement. Now, last week, as you may recall, we learned in the opening verses of Mark, verse 11, that Jesus arrives at Jerusalem to face his destiny. Knowing that he was going to die, he went there anyway. He accepts the crowd's adoration as king, and he comes, though, as a king, not to bring war, but to bring peace. And though this earthly coronation was temporary, we learn from the Apostle Paul that a heavenly coronation had taken place in which Jesus now sits on the throne of God, awaiting the day of the future coronation here on earth. We saw that there was two responses from that passage for those that accept Jesus as king, and that's obedience and worship. And so we looked at it. If Jesus truly is king today, he demands our obedience and worship. In today's passage, as we continue on in Mark chapter 11, we're going to see that Jesus still comes as king, but as a king, he's going to perform some inspections, and he's going to make some judgments via two actions. First, we'll see he curses the fig tree, for bearing no fruit, and then he turns and condemns the religious leaders 
for the misuse of the temple. Let's read the passage. Mark chapter 11, 12 through 21. Mark writes, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, speaking of Jesus, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, that's important, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, Mark tells us. And he said to him in verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. In verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Father, I pray that you give us wisdom now as we read and listen to your word. Father, I pray that you would just find favor on what I'm about to say, on the study, and what we're trying to do as we build and edify the church and respond to the Holy Spirit. Let us know the difference between mere man's opinion, Lord, and the truth of your word. Make it clear to us today, Lord, how we're to respond, what promise we can claim, what action we must take this morning as we recognize and live out the aspect that you are the King. Thank you for your word. We pray once again in Christ's name. Amen. Now the first inspection that Jesus makes is that of the fig tree that we read of. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's hungry. He's like any other man. He's human. Maybe he didn't have much of a lunch. There's not a lot to, to go along the road. And he's hungry. He's wanting to curb his appetite. He spies a tree up ahead. It's in bloom and with anticipation. He walks up to a tree to pluck a fig from its branches only to find the tree empty. It's barren. Though filled with leaves, there are no figs. Now, here's what's important for us to understand. For fig leaves usually appear about the same time as the fruit or actually after the fruit. Now, that's opposite of most fruit trees. For most trees, they come first and then the fruit, but the fig tree is opposite. Figs come first, then the leaves. Mark tells us here that it's not the season for figs. So in other words, the leaves should not have been there. They should not have been there at all. But the tree was in leaf, which would indicate fruit. The fruit came before the leaves. This was like false advertising. And in response to this false advertisement, Jesus curses the tree by commanding, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And sure enough, as we saw in verse 20, the following morning, the disciples find the tree dead. It was withered away to its roots. Now, this is the only miracle of destruction ever recorded in the Gospels. This event also displays the power of God, of Jesus as the Son of God, over nature, in which he could claim something to be dead, and it is. He can raise to life, but he can also take away life. So that's the first inspection. It's, it's false advertisement. The leaves are there saying, oh, fruit is here, but yet it's not. The second inspection is that of the temple. Walking into the temple would have been a very sensory experience. 
you'd have the smell and, and the animals and the bleeding of the animals, the calls of the animals, and the smells might have been overwhelming. You would hear the noise of the crowds as they're walking and shouting and talking and making uh, commercial things as they're preparing for the Passover and the sacrifices. As we had mentioned last week, you may recall, Jerusalem population is going to soar oh, close to 2 million people in Jerusalem for that special day. As people from all along the countryside of Palestine, Israel, and around the world would come to make a pilgrimage for Passover and the Day of Atonement. And that's the day when the high priest would make a sacrifice for all the Jews that was inscribed in Exodus. They had celebrated this event since leaving Egypt. You might recall that it was first observed on the night of the last plague of the death of the firstborn child that God brought against Pharaoh in Egypt. God had made it a command to observe this special day from then on. At the beginning, it was uh, performed at the tabernacle. That was a temporary structure that was put up until Solomon built the temple 400 years after they left Egypt. After the kingdom of Israel was conquered and the Jews scattered around the known world, they would still make the annual pilgrimage journey to Jerusalem for that special day. Now here's what's important to notice of the time when we're seeing all these animals and all these money changers there. You see, the pilgrims would purchase the animals needed for the sacrifice from the cattlemen and the shepherds and those that were selling birds because it was much more practical to buy the animals there than to drag them with you or to bring you with them from where you lived. Back then, travel was very dangerous and very difficult. And they would also need to exchange the Roman coin or whatever coin they were for the currency that was needed for the temple tax that was instituted in the book of Exodus. The problem that we see here is not that there were sellers and exchangers doing that work. That was a needful. The problem was that the sellers and exchangers would take advantage of the travelers with the knowledge and consent of the high priest and would approve and authorize their booths. This is what angered Jesus. It's not the practice or the business that Jesus was upset with. What Jesus was upset was with the location. And to understand Jesus' reaction here, to start overturning tables and to, and to push people out, was to first note the purpose of the temple along with the court of Gentiles. You see, the temple was the central focus of Jewish life and worship. The first temple was built by Solomon, but was destroyed in 587 B.C. by the Babylonians. The second temple was built when some of the Jews were allowed back after the exile in 515 B.C., but it was desecrated in 165 B.C. by Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the followers of Alexander the Great. Herod began rebuilding the temple in 20 B.C., and it took years, even at the time of Jesus, it was still under construction at the time that Jesus visited it. But then that temple itself, the third temple, so to speak, or the second and a half temple there, was again destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Roman army. The court of the Gentiles here, as we need to understand, is the focus of this passage. Not so much the temple itself, but it's the court of the Gentiles that Jesus was at and where was going on. If you were to approach the temple, and I don't have a picture here for you, but if you can imagine, if you approach the temple in first century AD, you would pass through the eastern gate where Jesus made his triumphal entry. So you can imagine as you're going through this large door, you would come to what was called the court of the Gentiles. This was not the Holy of Holies. This was not the place where the Israelites and the Jews could go to, but it was a place where anyone can go to. It was open to all comers, including the cattle dealers and the money changers who wound up 
of desecrating that temple. It was a large court paved with stones with various colors. It was also called the outer court or the lower court. And the rabbis usually called it the mountain of the Lord's house. And all around the temple proper was a nine foot high terrace with stairs which was higher than the court of the Gentiles. So you would go up higher. But there was also a five foot wall that was designed to keep out the Gentiles. The Gentiles could only go into what was called the court of the Gentiles. They could not go any further into the temple, but they could gather right here. There was also pillars in the wall and at various distances with inscriptions in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew that warned all Gentiles to come no further under the penalty of death. And so as they're going in here, they're in the court of the Gentiles. And as you go, there's a lot of commercial activity going on. Now, what was happening, the activity was practical. It was something that was needful and needed to date. Now, they didn't need to cheat and steal and things of that nature. But what had happened is the high priest, to make it even easier and to grab more money, brought it into the court of the Gentiles. Let me share with you two reasons for Jesus' anger. And you'll see these on the screen. The first one is because the temple was a place of prayer. The place was a, it was a place of prayer. Jesus quotes two passages of the Old Testament, verse 17. Jesus says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Isaiah chapter 56. I want you to see where this comes from. This is important as we understand why is it is Jesus reacting so angrily. In Isaiah 56, in verse 6, this is what God says, And to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, in other words, to those non-Jews, those Gentiles who want to come to the Lord, it's to minister and to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these, He says, I will bring to my holy mountain and I make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Why? For my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? All peoples. See, the temple wasn't just for the Jews. The Lord God, he says, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, also declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already gathered. Jesus is going to react angrily because the temple was a place for prayer for all of God's people. Number two, the temple was to bring salvation to those foreigners and strangers. He was able to bring them to the covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 7, it says in verse 8, Behold, he's speaking here to the Jewish people, and he's ready to give a condemnation. Listen to what God says to Jeremiah. He tells to the religious leaders, he says, Behold, you religious leaders, you Jews, you Israelites, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. He says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then verse 10, he says, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only then to go on doing these abominations? He says, are you really going to do this? It's like people who party on Saturday night, do all the things that the scripture says not to do, and then come on Sunday and say, oh, I'm a Christian. 
And he's saying, is this really what you're going to do? He says, the Lord God, he says, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? He says, you are defrauding, you're defaming the house of God. For what should be a house of prayer, which should be a place to bring people in so that they may be brought into the covenant of God. He says, you've made it into something much, much worse. Temple service did require provision to be made for getting what was needed for the sacrifice. They needed the animals, the wood, the oil, all these things. They were especially for pilgrims that were traveling a great distance. Money changers needed to convert the standard Greek and Roman currency into the money that was needed for the temple tax, the half shekel. But however, they were charging excessive rates. But what was happening... By allowing that practice into the courts of Gentiles, they broke the solemn worship and prayers in the adjoining courts. Jesus uses these words of God in Jeremiah to liken it to a den of thieves. The temple was a place of worship for all people, and the temple was to bring salvation for foreigners and strangers to the covenant. So it's with this understanding that Jesus reacts angrily when he enters and witnesses a total disregard for the high purposes of the temple. Just as a side note, I wonder if Jesus were to walk in some of the houses of worship today, and if he were to examine what was going on in his name, how would he react? How would he react to the people who claim his name, but yet live differently from what they truly are? For we think we can be delivered but live any way that we want. The temple was to be a place that gave witness to the glory of God to the nations. Yet the people, they had relegated the temple to a place of superstitious belief that God would protect and rally His people whether they conform to His will or not. Both of these passages that Jesus quote were words of judgment and condemnation. And to be honest, I think you and I many times could stand under these same words. Because really, many times our churches have become places of superstitious beliefs. That as long as we're going to church, giving a little bit of money, doing a little bit of this, doing a little bit of that, then I'm okay with God. It doesn't matter if I obey and show any type of worship as long as I come. What's your heart saying today? But Jesus reacts angrily, for they do not do what he's called to do. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the last book of the Old Testament. It's found in Malachi. For this cleansing of the temple is actually, once again, a fulfillment of Scripture. It is not totally fulfilled, or we could say it is. Malachi chapter 3. God once again says to Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will set his refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them to gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
The messenger prophesied in is John the Baptist there when he says, I will send my messenger. While the Lord refers to the Messiah as we know that Jesus is. R.T. France, the theologian, notes that the temple worship has lost its true focus and again must be purified. Hence, the purpose of the temple was a place of prayer for all of God's people. And number two, the temple was to bring salvation for foreigners and strangers to the covenant. Now Jesus' words and his actions bring forth active hostility from the religious leaders. Look at verse 18 of Mark chapter 11. It says, Mark records that the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy Jesus, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Why did they seek to destroy Jesus? Because they feared him. Why did they fear him? Because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They were afraid of Jesus' influence. They were afraid of losing their temple. However, they must recognize that the temple was not theirs. It was not for their use only. It was not for their purposes, but it was for God's holy purposes. So Jesus condemns and judges in his inspection both the fig tree and the temple. Now, Jesus' harsh response to the tree in the crowd is striking, is it not? I think I get this question asked mostly. It was it okay for Jesus to be angry? He curses the tree and he causes its death. He forbids the selling, the buying of anyone from taking a shortcut through the temple. It had just become this place that was just a mass of humanity without any spiritual purpose. The question that comes immediately to mind, at least mine, was Jesus wrong to show anger in both episodes? Again, as I said, many times the question comes to me, well, Jesus was angry. Was Jesus sinful here when he was angry and overturning and cursing the fig tree? That sounds like me as I'm driving and I'm cursing every, may you never drive again. May your car never start again. You know, those types of things. Don't you wish we had that type of power? Probably not. Probably not, because I would probably be just as well on the side of the road with a broken down vehicle. Was Jesus wrong to show anger in both episodes? Well, the answer is simply no. Jesus is king. And as the king, he has every right and authority to not only inspect what he owns, and let me share with you here, he owns the fig tree. He owns the temple. The answer is, is he owns, he can expect all that he owns, but it's also his right as king to declare judgment if it fails to do what is required. What we see in this passage is an acted out parable, not a fit of uncontrolled anger. This is not Jesus going ballistic. This is not Jesus needing anger management. This is acted out parable to teach us a lesson. Jesus was using these two events to teach a very important lesson. You see, number one, the tree, the fig tree, is symbolic in that it signifies the hypocrisy of all who have the appearance that they bear fruit, but in fact do not. In essence, what Jesus is using this is that this fig tree represents Israel. Just as the presence of leaves would indicate fruit. Remember, the fig tree, if it had leaves, it was already time for fruit. It's opposite of most trees. So just as the presence of leaves would indicate fruit, so Israel was to bear fruit by its presence as a nation via their worship. 
both the fig tree and Israel are deserving of judgment for not bearing fruit. As Jesus walks in Jerusalem, he's looking around and he knows this is the time of fulfillment. Israel has been disobedient for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And the time of judgment is coming. You see, the fig tree is guilty of false advertisement, saying that it had fruit because it had leaves. But the fig tree is guilty of false advertisement, just as Israel is guilty of false advertisement, by saying they wanted the Messiah of confirming it and saying we desire it, but their actions, their worship, and their obedience demonstrated that they truly did not want the Messiah. Yeah, they gave lip service to God. They said they wanted a Messiah. But in the end, what did they do to the Messiah? They rejected Him. They tortured Him. And they killed Him. Israel says, yes, we are God's chosen Israel. But it's false advertisement. As Jesus says, you say of me, but your lips speak of me, but your hearts are far from me. Unfortunately, I believe there are many people today who profess as Christians. Their lips say that they're Christians, but their heart and their actions are far from Christ. They too are guilty of false advertisement. Hey, I'm a Christian, but yet their minds, their worldviews, the way they live shows anything but. Here's something that you and I must understand. As Jesus the King, He has the right to inspect. And Scripture tells us that Jesus one day will inspect our lives. Matthew tells us, so every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears what? Bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them but their fruits. When Jesus looks at your life, does he see a healthy tree or a good tree? When he looks at your heart, does it truly show that which bears good fruit? Because you can give somebody else some fruit and say, here it is, and they may accept it. But he tells us you will recognize them by their fruits. He will also inspect our identity and our work. Again, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, went into the kingdom of heaven. He says, some will come and say, but we did mighty works. We cast out demons. We did miracles in your name. And what does Jesus say? Depart from me. I what? I never knew you. Jesus will inspect not only your work, but he's going to inspect your identity. To say you're a Christian and to even do good works. Now, again, I've said this before. It doesn't say that these people did not cast out demons. It did not say that they did not do good works in Jesus' name. Jesus says, I never knew you. I mean, if someone came to my house and they had a card that says that they were a Currington and they acted like a Currington, they kind of looked like a Currington, and I say, I'm sorry, you're not one of mine. I never knew you. You can have all of that false identity but not be the real deal. And Jesus says, I'm going to expect not only your work, but I expect your identity. For I know who are mine. So Jesus will inspect our lives. He will inspect our identity and work. And then he'll also inspect the church and the community. In 1 Corinthians, speaking of the church, he says, I've laid a foundation that no one else can lay, but that which is laid is Jesus Christ. And no one can lay a foundation other than that. 
But if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest or be made known, for the day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work is it. So one day we will stand, not only as Christians, but as believers, as Orangeville Bible Church, and God will say, what did you build into the church? We'll say, we did this, we did this program, we did that. I held the door for this person. I loved that person. I gave money to that, but God will inspect the motivation of the heart and who we are. You see, God is a God of inspection. He's, he's a king. He'll take a tour and he'll inspect. And so we must not be guilty of false advertisement. If you're here today and you say, I'm born again, if you profess Christ, then you need to live that out. You need to fulfill the purpose that God has called you to. Not that we don't struggle. Not that we won't have a fight with sin. If you're like me, you're fighting with sin each and every moment. From the moment you wake up to the day when you go to sleep, and even probably those waking moments, and even in your dreams, you're fighting sin. That's the Christian life. However, when we give into it, when our life is marked with unrepentant sin, the danger is false advertisement. But one of the genuine marks of a genuine Christian is repentance. It's the life of repentance of fighting with sin, not struggling, but fighting with sin. Struggling with sin is a given. And so I challenge you today, are you giving out a false advertisement of who you truly are and who you identify with? The second point I want to point out is that the temple was symbolic of God's presence with man. That's so important. God had a presence in the garden. He had a presence in the tabernacle. He has a presence in the temple. And now His presence today is with His people in the visible local church. But the temple was symbolic of God's presence with man. And it was to be a place where even temporarily here on earth, man could be reconciled with God through the sacrificial system. The temple had, though, through the actions of its leaders, had become guilty, not of false advertisement, but fraudulent advertisement by not doing what it intended to do. It was intended to be a place of prayer and a light to all nations. Why? To draw God's people to Himself. Today that responsibility has been given to the children of God through His visible local church. But the temple had become a fraudulent advertisement. Instead of being a light and a house of prayer, it became a place of superstitious belief and an idol. And just a place of commercial activity where somebody can make a buck. Sounds like a lot of churches today, does it not? And other type of church organizations. Pray, let's not be guilty of that. Whether individually in our false advertisement or corporately as a body of fraudulent, let this be a place where people know that the gospel of God is here. This church is to be a community in which we're calling others and drawing others. Why? By our love. The fact that we're a place of prayer. We're a place of, that's a light. Not a place for each and every person's own agenda, program, and things that they want to do, but it's a place in which we're drawing the people of God. Let me come to the end by this. You need to understand this and you need to accept this. 
And here's where I think, because I don't believe a lot of Christians do. They may say amen, they may understand it or say yes, but I think we don't internalize it and believe that it's real. Jesus as king has the right and the will to inspect all things. Non-believer and believer alike. Jesus will judge. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is a time of judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And here's why I think it's important. For you and I must understand that there's an inspection coming. There is an inspection coming for those that do not know Christ. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Revelation chapter 20. We must understand this. For you and I have loved ones. We have family and friends. We have neighbors, people that we do business with that do not yet know Christ. We may have some in our church that say they are Christians, but yet their life is not marked by life of Christianity, by a life of obedience. Look what he says here in Revelation chapter 20. We're going to start with verse 11. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And when the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they'd done. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And look at verse 15. This needs to change our whole perspective in life. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God is going to inspect all people. There will be a day when those who do not know Jesus Christ will find themselves not living as God has called them. And there'll be no other chance. There'll be no other opportunity for them to hear the gospel. That in itself should cause you and I to be compelled with compassion to share the good news. Not all will want to hear it. Many will reject it. Scripture tells us that. But yet it's our job to tell them. There is no agenda. There is no job. There is no organization that's more important than telling others that one day you will be judged by God. Is appointed unto man what? Once to die, then after this the judgment. There is nothing more important than us sharing the gospel. There is no other decision more important than what would they do for eternal life. There is no important person that they must be introduced to than Jesus Christ. Amen? But do you believe it? Then how will that change what you're going to do this week? How will that change what you write on Facebook? How will that change your interaction with the person that, that gives you your food all the time at a restaurant or at the store? How will that change your interaction with your family, with your neighbor? One day Jesus will inspect and his wrath, his anger will be poured out on those who do not know him. 
Number two, believers will be judged. We too. We'll be judged in what's known as the Bema seat in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So where Paul says, so whether I'm at home speaking here on earth or whether I'm away in the presence of God, we make it our aim to please Him. Paul says it doesn't matter if I'm dead or alive, my goal, my aim, all of life is to please Him. And I have to ask a question, why is it? He answers it in verse 10, for he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the loan in the body, whether good or evil. So you and I do not escape Jesus' inspection. One day we will stand before and he'll see whether we've been fraudulent or false advertisement. Let me ask, are you ready today, right now, are you ready to be inspected by the Almighty? The ultimate power of the universe? I pray that you are. And I rejoice if you are. I have to say, sometimes I struggle with that question. Because many times I'm not ready. But yet also, God gives us some grace and some mercy. He does give us good news. What is expected of believers, you may ask? I think that's a good question. I think you should ask. If I'm going to be inspected by God, how is He going to inspect me? If I'm going to get a performance review at work, then I want to know, well, what are you going to judge? What are you going to review? So the Bible tells us, for believers, what is He going to review? Is it how much sin that I've fought off? Is it how many times I've sinned? Is it how many times I've gone to church? How much I've given? How many times I've knocked on a door? How many times I've shared the gospel? What is it? Unfortunately, many of us think it's that. But really, it's very simple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the inspection is going to be based on our faithfulness. The Bible says stewards must be faithful. The standard is perfection. For we must be perfect, Jesus said, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, If my inspection is based on the perfection of the Almighty, then I'm lost. I have no hope of ever passing it. Let me tell you, my fruit is a little bruised. My fruit has a few chunks here and there that are carved out. I got some of the fuzz is warmed down to the nub. However, For just as God dispenses judgment, He also gives grace. Jesus is on the throne, and He's reigning as King today. And one day there will be a judgment, and we must be faithful in knowing that, preparing for that, by sharing the gospel and living our lives in obedience and worship. However, just as He's on the throne reigning as King, He offers amnesty. He offers forgiveness, and He deals with us patiently. Let me challenge you today. If you're one of Christ's, and your inspection, you're fearful of it, as we should be, our only hope is for obedience and worship. And even when we fail, God is the one who makes us sufficient. Come to Him for grace. He says if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
We can come before the one who will take us. And even though we have broken fruit and, and bruised us, you know what? One day we're going to give him that and he's going to shine it up and he's going to love it. And he's going to see that his grace covers all of that and he's going to accept that fruit. God gives us amnesty, forgiveness, and patience. But let me share with you, that does not give us an excuse to say, well, then I can do anything I want. Because Jesus cursed the fig tree for not having fruit, even as Mark says, it's still. Why is it the tree's fault? It was not the season for figs. You have no excuse. But do rest in that. Let me end with this. Don't be guilty of false or fraudulent advertisement. Commit today to bearing the fruit by fulfilling God's purposes for you through the power of the Holy Spirit. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'd ask you to take a moment and pause. Consider what we shared with us today, what he shared through this word. Would you pray and you ask, Father, how would you respond? Father, am I ready for the inspection? Father, am I been guilty of false advertisement or fraudulent advertisement? Have I professed you but not lived it? If so, would you put yourself at the throne room of God and just say, grant me mercy? Swim in the mercy that God gives, but also follow what he's called as king for obedience and worship to be faithful is required. Father, we come before you this morning and there could be many decisions this morning I know in my own heart just the desire to be ready for that inspection, to understand that even those that do not know you will one day stand before you. I need to prepare them. I need to share the gospel. Father, I pray that you strengthen us to walk and to be faithful. And Father, when those are times when we struggle with faithfulness, I pray that your spirit would come and Lord, just increase our measure of faith. Strengthen us. Make us ready for the battle. Give us the, the desire for obedience. Give us the joy for worship. And Father, let us swim in the grace and mercy you so freely give to us. But Lord, let us commit this morning to being the person that you've called us to be as Christians. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.